0: Don't forget to check out everydaytheologian.life for more biblical and theological resources and also some exclusive merchandise. Hey everyone, welcome back. If this is your first time joining us, I just want to say thank you. If you decided to watch on YouTube or listen to the podcast, whatever way you decided to join, I just want to say thanks for being a part. My name is Charlie Rose. For those of you who do not know me, and on this platform, we will discuss theology topics, doctrinal topics, and learn how to navigate our Bible together. So last week, we talked about the meta narrative of scripture the big picture of what's going on throughout all of the Bible. This week, we're going to do a Bible overview. So we're going to look at the 66 books and try to understand where they fit into each category and how they impact the big story of scripture. First, I would love to read um, Hebrews chapter four, verse 12, and start with opening up the word of God together. So Paul is writing and he says, For the word of God is alive and active, sharper than a double-edged sword. It penetrates, even dividing soul and spirit, joint and marrow, and it judges the thoughts and attitudes of our heart. So if we believe that the Bible is alive and active, and that it's sharper than a double-edged sword piercing through our soul and spirit, joints and marrow, Shouldn't we open it up with reverence? Shouldn't we open it up in desire to understand what it says? We should hold it above any other text and we shouldn't just read it because we feel like we're supposed to, right? We don't just want to read it and check it off our to-do list, just like grocery shopping or making our bed. Because the reality of it is, if we read our Bible because it's part of our checklist, it will never transform our hearts. It will never penetrate into our hearts like this text is telling us. And it judges, the text says it judges the thoughts and attitudes of our heart. It literally transforms us from the inside out. So right now, I wanna ask you a question, a reflection question before we jump into today's topic. What do you think of when you approach the Bible? Do you find it boring, Maybe you think that it's really daunting and it's scary and you open it up and then you have no idea what to do with all of the genealogies or all of the words that you can't even pronounce. I have totally been there too. Maybe you go to church on Sunday morning and you hear the Bible and then you go home and put it on your dresser and that's the only time it's open the whole week. The issue with this is... Let's take um, the analogy of eating. Why do we think that we need to feed our bodies three meals a day to feel satisfied, but only read our Bible one time a week? How malnourished would our soul be if we only opened up our Bible one time a week? And it goes the same way with eating, right? If we only ate one time a week, man, I would be really, really hungry. I don't know about you, but I would not be a happy camper. So if you only read your Bible once a week, you're really gonna have um, an empty cup to pour from, to pour into other people, to handle situations in your life. Um, you're gonna be overflowing from nothing. So let's understand that it's really important to not just open up our Bible, but to love our Bible, to understand why God kept his word, preserved his word for us all of these years to then transform our lives today. Also, there is one other thing I would like to address, and it is the translation of the Bible you may have. So, There are many theology topics and doctrinal topics that I I would love to um, debate with people and talk about. But honestly, the translation of your Bible is not something that I really wanna debate. If you have a Bible and you open up and read your Bible, that is absolutely wonderful. And that is good enough for me. Um, I do not care what version it is. I know some people do. So I just wanna talk real briefly about why you have different translations. So there are essentially three categories of translations. We have word for word, we have thought for thought, and then we have paraphrased versions. So a word for word Bible would be um, like the King James, New King James, ESV, just to name a few. And what I say, what I mean by word for word is that the translator took the Hebrew and Greek and actually translated each word for what the English word is. So, for instance, if the word tomato was in Greek, then he literally translated that same word as tomato in English. I know that that's kind of a silly example, but I think you know what I'm saying. So, a thought for thought translation would be like the NIV, um the NLT or the New Revised Standard Version, just to name a couple of those. I'm looking at a list and there's numerous. But thought for thought is that the translator took the Hebrew and Greek and put what the author of that book was meaning. So, for instance, if you have a verse that may be confusing to us in English if it was written out and we were trying to read it in Greek, he would then translate that into English in the same thoughtful meaning. So you don't lose what it's saying. It's just maybe not the exact word for word that um, the ESV would have. Okay. The last example of a Bible you may have in your home and read would be a paraphrased Bible. So um, I know a lot of churches love like the Passion Translation or maybe you really like to read the Message Version. And that is great. Now, what happened when uh, when the translator created those was that he actually didn't take the Hebrew and Greek words and he didn't take the thought for thought. He paraphrased what the author was saying. So... um. If I had a really lengthy sentence to tell you about my two-year-old, instead of telling you absolutely everything in the Hebrew and Greek, he would just paraphrase what the author was saying into English. So that's why you have different translations. And I am absolutely not going to tell you one is better than the other. I just wanted to simply give you an understanding of why you and the person sitting beside you in church may not have the same exact words in your English Bible. So, whichever Bible you decide to read, I just want you to have confidence knowing that it is the Word of God, right? We talked about doctrinal statement a couple weeks ago. We talked about the bibliology, the inerrancy of Scripture, the infallibility. I'm saying that the Bible is true and that the Bible could never have any error in it. So, your Bible as well is true you may say, well, could could there be an error in the translation? There actually could be an error in that translation, but it does not mean that the Bible is not true because the meaning of what the author was originally saying is not lost in, in the translation. And any scholar would tell you that same exact thing, I can guarantee you. So today we are going to jump in to the overview of Scripture Last week we talked about the meta narrative creation, fall, redemption and restoration. And today we're going to talk about how do the 66 books written by 40 authors over 1500 years fit into this one meta narrative? How do they come together, right? And sometimes we open up the Bible and think I don't think there's any way that this all comes together. This is so confusing. 1500 years, like how does this even tie together? But it does, and it's actually super simple to understand too. It just has to be broken down for us. And um, this was broken down for me in seminary. The president of DTS actually gave a great outline for me and he, I won't make you do this, but he encouraged us to clap to the beat. And if you are at home right now and you're just whipping up breakfast or whatever, and you you want to start clapping, then go ahead. I think it may um, mess up the audio if I started clapping, so I'm not going to. But the numbers, so I'm going to say some random numbers, but I'm going to tell you how they tie together with scripture. So if you want, here's the beat. 5 12 5 5 12. 5, 12, 5, 5, 12, Do you feel the beat? Can you clap? 5, 12, 5, 5, 12. And then we're going to hop into another set of numbers, 4, 1, 1, 4, 1, 1. So we said 5, 12, 5, 5, twelve four 4, 1, 1. And you may be thinking, will you please stop repeating these numbers? Why are you saying this? But I really want to encourage you, if you could memorize these numbers, it will help you tremendously when you open up the Bible to any book, any chapter, any verse. It will give you the context of where you're at. So let's jump in real quick. The first five I was talking about was the first five books of the Old Testament. So this is called the Pentateuch. Um, Pentateuch simply means, penta means five and tuq means books in Greek. Maybe you've heard of this as the Torah. Um, I think it's actually pronounced Torah, but I don't really have all the right pronunciations, right? So in my Southern accent, I'm just gonna say Torah and you're gonna hopefully understand what I'm saying. This simply means law, the word law in Hebrew, or maybe you've heard of the first five books of the Old Testament being called the books of Moses because Moses wrote them. So we have the first five books. Then we move into 512. The second set of numbers was theology. So essentially it's history books. But it's not just history. It's not just any type of history. It's theological history. The author is doing something with what the author is saying. So we're being led on a journey. And last week, you know, you have a sneak peek into what the journey is, right? Creation, fall, restoration in Christ, and then the redemption story. So if you were opening up to these 12 books, you would know that you are in history section. You are being led on a journey five, 12, five. The next set is poetry books. And you may say, well, why are they poet? Why are they poetry books? And the answer is simply because they're poetic in their words. They are actual poetry. So we're going to look at those a little bit more in a second. But the next set, five, 12, five, five so the other set of fives and i have, maybe you're writing this down maybe that would be helpful but the other set of five would be the uh, major profits and then the last 12 would be the minor profits and you may say well what separates a major profit from a minor profit and it's only the size of the book sometimes we think oh I'm reading a major prophet right now. So I need to listen up because this is more important than if I was in a minor prophet. But that's not true. Major and minor prophets, essentially you could group all 17 together because they're all prophets of equal significance, right? But the five larger books are simply called major prophets. If you like Bible trivia, there you go. That'll probably show up somewhere. So, Going back, okay, and we're going to save the New Testament 4 one one for next week, but I just wanted it to already be in your clapping um, beat ready to go next week. So moving back to um, the Pentateuch, right? The, the books of Moses, the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, we see... um creation, right? We actually see creation and the fall, two things we talked about last week in the first book of the Bible in Genesis. So we see the fall of man, but there's something I wanna point out that I did not last week, and it's Genesis chapter three, verse 15. So sin has entered the world and God actually um, curses Satan, And this will be significant in your understanding of the entire Bible, this one verse. So put your seatbelt on and hold on and listen to this. So God is telling Satan, and I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers, and I will crush your head and you will strike his heel. Now you may be thinking, Wow, I have no idea what that means. Or maybe you saw the restoration piece of Christ first coming in that verse. God said, "And you, and He will crush your head, and you will strike His heel." In Genesis chapter three, right after Adam and Eve sinned, God already had a redemption plan. He already had um, the knowledge that he was going to make a way for you to be in a right relationship with him. So when we're understanding wherever wherever we're reading in the Bible, we wanna know that in the beginning, God had a redemption plan for you. That's part of the meta-narrative we talked about last week. And so Genesis continues, right? Creation, the fall, uh, we have the flood, we see Noah building this ark. Maybe you remember that in Sunday school. And then something super significant happens again. A man named Abram steps into the scene. Maybe you've heard this story. Father Abraham had many sons, right? And you're like doing this dance. I remember the dance. So why is this significant? Well, God made a covenant with Abram. And the covenant uh, foreshadows Christ coming. So we see in Genesis chapter three that God makes a redemption plan already into play. Genesis chapter 12, we see that God makes covenant, uh, reaffirming that redemption plan. So Genesis chapter 12, verse one to three, God says, I will make you, he's speaking to Abram, I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse whoever curses you, and all the people on earth will be blessed through you. Now, you you may think, wow, that's a great covenant with that one person. But actually, that is how God redeemed all of mankind. Through that Abrahamic covenant, we see essentially the line of Jesus coming into the world and making a way for salvation for everyone. So we have the Abrahamic covenant in Genesis chapter 12. And then Genesis continues on and it ends with the story of Joseph. You may remember um, Joseph is leading Egypt and then his brothers try to sell. They do. They sell him into slavery. Are you remembering this story? I'm not going to go into the whole thing, but that's how the book of Genesis ends. Joseph is leading Egypt, but then Exodus begins With a Pharaoh who did not know Joseph and God's people, the Israelites, who God made a covenant with in Genesis chapter 12, those people were enslaved. So we see God raising up a man named Moses. He goes to Pharaoh and he says, let my people go, right? It's a continuous story of God redeeming humanity redeeming people. So he starts with a chosen people in uh, Genesis chapter 12, but it's not just a chosen people. It is all people, right? So he's continuing to save these people, to redeem these people. Now, when Moses frees these people, right? They don't have a land. God promised them a land. They don't have a land. They don't have a law to follow. And they're just wondering, wondering in the wilderness, right? So God creates a law for them. And then we step into Leviticus. It's maybe um, you've read it and you've thought, wow, this is a lot of things to do and rules to follow because it is. There's 613 laws that God gave his people to follow And that um, is apart from the Ten Commandments he gave them in the book of Exodus to follow. So uh, I could not wake up every day and follow all of those laws. The issue was that neither could the Israelites. They could not follow all of these laws either. And it got them into a lot of trouble. So we continue on. Um, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, right? It's a book that essentially has a whole lot of numbers in it. The reason that it has so many numbers is because Moses had to take a census of all these people that were following him around in the wilderness. He actually had to take two census. Um, there was one generation that was that was faithless. They did not believe that God could make a way for them to get into the promised land the promised land that he had promised them, right? And if God promises you something, then yes, it's going to come to pass, but they did not have faith. So God had to wait until this faithless generation passed away to build up a generation that did have faith in him. So we see a lot of counting happening in the book of Numbers. And then Deuteronomy um, ends and we see That generation has passed away. A new generation is coming and that generation is not being led by Moses anymore. It's being led by a man named Joshua. So Joshua starts the history books and history. Remember, we're doing something. The author is doing something with what the author is saying. We're being led on a journey. So when you feel like, man, this really isn't making sense, remember, wait, what is the big picture? What is the one journey I'm being led on? The narrative always points to Christ, and this will unfold in history. So we start these history books with Joshua, Judges, Ruth. 1st and 2nd Samuel, 1st and 2nd Kings, and 1st and 2nd Chronicles, all of the 1st and second. These stories um, tell us about God's people attempting to take on this promised land that they were told they would receive. So the book of Joshua shows us God's faithfulness in keeping his covenant with the Israelites. They did enter the promised land. However, They did not follow all of the things that God had told them to do. There was disobedience that led to a lot of issues for them. So the book of Judges is a book where God is, um, it's essentially this cycle, this sad cycle for the Israelites where they decide to worship a false God and then they become enslaved. They cry out to God for help, and through his faithfulness, God raises up a judge to deliver them. They worship God for a time, and then again, they start to worship a false God, and the cycle continues and continues and then continues. So when you read it, you may think, wow, these people never get it, right? They, they're not following what God has told them to do. But also that causes us to examine our own lives. How many times are we not getting it? How many times are we just not following or doing or obeying what God has called us to do? And thank God for the grace that he continuously extends to us. And we see he continuously extended to his people in the Old Testament. So the book of Ruth is a very short book about the faithfulness, what faithfulness to God looks like during a time of uncertainty. In our lives, things do not always look like rainbows and butterflies, but we serve a God who is unchanging that we can constantly have faith knowing that he is working, even if we don't understand what he is doing. So then all of the first and second start coming into play. First and second Samuel. First Samuel tells us about um, the last judge and his name is Samuel. He, um, he was the last judge and then we step into kings. So essentially the Israelites uh, wanted a king for themselves. The judge cycle wasn't working. We, we read about that and they wanted a king to rule over and govern, and govern them the issue with that is they picked their king themselves. They did not allow God to weigh in on who would be the king. So they picked a man named Saul, King Saul. And if you're familiar with this story, you know that uh, that didn't work out so well for them. And God chose the second king, King David, and he was a man after God's own heart. So when we are trying to make plans ourselves and make things happen ourselves it doesn't always go exactly how it should, right? Because God is the one that should guide our steps, not ourselves. So we see um, King David, and you may remember the story of him killing Goliath with a stone. That's who I'm talking about. So 2 Samuel is mainly about David's life. We see his leadership, but we also see his sin. Maybe you're thinking of this story where he um, had an affair and then had a man killed. Yeah, it's pretty heavy. So David as well sinned. Everyone that God chose to use in the Old Testament was full of sin, right? We talked about total depravity in our doctrinal statement. After Adam and Eve sinned in Genesis chapter three, we all have sin within us when we're born. So King David, being a man after God's own heart, had sin in his life too. You may say, well, what made him a man after God's own heart? And the answer is repentance. King David repented for his affair, for having um, the woman that he committed adultery with, her husband killed, repented for that and in our own lives no matter what we've done we're called to repent and then Romans chapter 9 verse 10 tells us to accept Jesus's gift right to confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord we don't have to work for salvation but we are called to repentance so after 1st and 2nd Samuel we roll into 1st and 2nd Kings so, 1st and 2nd Kings is a great title because those two books are about the kings that ruled over Israel. So, they didn't want judges anymore, they wanted a king to rule over them. So, there are 40 kings that are recorded for us to read about. Now, David had a son named Solomon, he was the wisest, most wealthiest man to ever live. And he had a son who wasn't quite the best. His son wanted to tax the people essentially to death, like too much, too much that they couldn't even pay in taxes. So God's people, the Israelites, separated from one people in one kingdom to two kingdoms. So now we have, it's the same people, but a Northern kingdom continued to be called Israel in a southern kingdom that was called Judah. The book of Kings tells us all about the kings that ruled in the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom and how they ruled. And let me just save you some trouble. There were 40 kings and in the northern kingdom, every one of them was evil. They did evil in the sight of the Lord and all um, of the ones of the southern kingdom were evil pretty much evil as well. There were a handful, um, three, maybe you think four or five who were um, righteous. So the issue with that is having evil rulers uh, makes the people not follow God. In 1st and 2nd Chronicles, this, these two books run parallel to 1st and 2nd Kings. So when you're reading it, it's not always like you're in a chronological order in the Bible. Sometimes books are happening during the same time frame other books are happening. So it's really really helpful to know the time frame of where you're reading at. So 1st and 2nd Chronicles running parallel to 1st and 2nd Kings. These books serve pretty much as a commentary for us to understand what these kings were like. They record the good kings that uh, the southern kingdom Judah had. They record about the temple, but also they give us hope. They give these people hope to know a king is coming. And we know that that is Jesus, our savior. So we're still in the uh, theological history books and we're rolling into Ezra and then the next book, Nehemiah. These books record uh, the amount of time or the accounts of the Israelites who returned from captivity. So we see, uh, remember when the Israelites were being enslaved? Well, these books record about them returning, returning to the land that God had promised them. Now, when they return to the land that God had promised them, things are not the same as when they left right? There's consequences for their sin. There's consequences of being enslaved. And the book of Nehemiah actually tells us about the rebuilding of the wall around Jerusalem. Even the physical land was not the same when they returned. Rolling into the book of Esther, this records an account of God's sovereignty over his people. The book of Esther actually is the only book in the Bible that does not say the word God in it. It doesn't mention God. Now, that does not mean that God is not working in it. His hand is all over the book of Esther, saving his people, his chosen people, right? Back to uh, Genesis chapter three, knowing that he has made a way for redemption. In Genesis chapter 12, that he has made a covenant with these people. And we see that continuously playing out for us in the Old Testament. So after these 12 history books, we step into the five poetic books. And um, when you read these, just know that they are, like I said, poetic in their nature. They consist of Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, and it doesn't mean that these are chronologically as well. Um, Psalms, let me back up. The book of Job first, I'm not gonna talk long about it, but I just wanna note that it tells another story of God's sovereignty and what faith looks like during oppression. Psalms, we see praises, we see laments, songs, confessions, and these are made by multiple men, David, Moses, solomon some of the men that i have previously mentioned the cool thing about psalms is we kind of see uh their journal right we kind of have a little sneak peek into their diaries when they're praising god during hard times when they're calling out to god when they are worshiping god it's kind of like they're you know notes that we get to read about and also remember that they as well are humans just like us. So 73 of these Psalms were written by David. There's only 150 of them. So essentially he wrote a big majority. Proverbs and Ecclesiastes and Song of Solomon were all written by none other than King Solomon. You got it. So remember earlier when I mentioned that he was the wisest man to ever live? Well, Proverbs is basically nuggets of wisdom. So if you live like this, then this will go well for you, right? Now I wanna take note that it does not mean that everything will always go well for you. So there's a proverb that I've heard a lot and um, it's a great verse Train a child up in the way they should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. That is a wonderful proverb, but I do want to just add that it is a proverb. It is a wise saying. So if you train a child up in the way that they should go, right? If you take a child to church, if you tell a child the gospel, does that mean they will never do anything wrong or depart from loving God? No, unfortunately, it does not mean that. They are not cause and effects. Proverbs are not do this and this will happen. It is do this and this should happen. So when we read them, we want to understand they are wise sayings for our lives, but it does not mean everything will always go according to plan, right? So Ecclesiastes, again, written by Solomon, and this is a look back on his life. He tells the readers, us, that everything is meaningless apart from God. He was the richest man to ever live. And he says, all of that is wasted if we don't have God in our lives. So um, Song of Solomon's, the next book that he wrote, is a book of love between a bride and her groom and this also gives us a beautiful picture of the love that God has for his people. So those were the poetic books. And now we're moving into the next category, which is the five major prophets. Um, there are a wide variety of message being messages being taught about within the prophets. But essentially, the prophets um, speak to the northern kingdoms, the southern kingdoms, And they tell them to repent, repent and be faithful to God. They pronounce judgment on them when they are doing wrong. And they also speak of the one to come. They tell us about the Messiah, prophecy about Jesus coming. So when we even read about the minor prophets, we continue to see judgment on the Northern and Southern kingdom, call to repentance and then telling them about the one to come. We seek God's desire over and over for the people. He wants his people to have joy. He wants his people to have fellowship, but the destruction that comes their way because of sin continues to be a barrier in their lives. I also want to note uh, chronologically, if you take the Poetic books, the five poetic books, and the five major prophets and the twelve minor prophets, and you just clump them all together and you go back to the history books, the twelve history books, and you drop them, they would go in order there. There would be that's that's when they were written. The time frame that they were written is during the same time frame as the 12 theological history books I talked about previously. So when you're reading um, a minor prophet like Malachi, right? Well, you can go into the history books and see what was going on when he wrote. So that is a really helpful way when you're studying to know, okay, what else is going on in the Old Testament when this book was going on? So when you were in the book of... um. Second Kings, right? You can go and see, okay, well, what prophet? Was there a prophet speaking during this book in Second Kings that I'm reading about? So when we end the Old Testament, we see um, a sad story, essentially, of sin, continued sin going on over and over and over through many years, and the lack of repentance that God's people had that he so desired for them to be in a right relationship with him, but the sin was just a barrier. It was just a gap. But we're reminded, and we have hope, knowing that there was there was, and is a redemption plan in play. In Genesis chapter three, we see the um, Messiah, right, that he will that you talking to Satan, you will strike his heel, but he will crush your head. He's talking about Christ. God was talking about Christ on the cross. Um, Another thing is there would be a way when we in the Old Testament, we know that there will be a way for God's people to be freed from their sin. So we in the Old Testament and they are essentially still in bondage to sin. Then we have 400 years of silence between the Old Testament and the New Testament where God is not speaking. There is not a judge raised up, a king raised up, a prophet raised up to speak on behalf of God. There is silence between the Old and the New Testament. The Old Testament, remember, ends in sin and then God stops speaking. But then the New Testament begins with Christ's birth. So the meta-narrative that we talked about last week, the four words, creation, fall, redemption, and restoration, line up with all 66 books, right? It's one story. 1,500 years of writing, 40 authors tell one story. And this week, um, I just wanted to talk about the Old Testament. I know that that was probably a lot, But if you could, when you study the Bible, understand wherever I am at, there isn't one journey I'm being led on. And then next week, we're gonna talk about the New Testament and how this one journey continues to play out. So thank you guys for listening today. And I hope this was helpful. I hope this continues to encourage you to have confidence, to share your faith with other people with gentleness and respect. We'll see you next week. Hey, everyone. Welcome to Everyday Theologian, where we educate, empower, and equip you to know why you believe what you believe.